1: question of whether or not we should call the suffragettes and the WSPU terrorists is redundant to me because they are and they were and they were proud of it then.
2: That was Fern Riddell discussing the suffragettes. This year marks a centenary of women being granted the right to vote in Britain and several books have been published to mark the occasion. One that is likely to stir up a fair amount of debate is a new book by historian Fern Riddell, a biography of the suffragette activist Kitty Marion. It explores some of the more extreme actions undertaken by elements of the suffrage campaign. Fern spoke to our staff writer Ellie Cawthorne.
0: I'm so fern thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Ellie. Really. So your new book, Death in 10 Minutes, looks at the life of Kitty Marion, who was a musical star turned suffragette. Could you perhaps introduce us to Kitty Marion, because we might not already know her, and why you
1: found her so fascinating? So she was a young German child immigrant, and she fled across from Germany to England, fleeing her abusive father, and arrived here when she was 15. And she'd always had this dream to go on the stage. It was what she was absolutely passionate about. And she believed more than anything that women had a right to be on the stage, to be public women and not have to trade anything, just have their independence. But she constantly found that men expected her to trade her body or trade sex in retaliation, in return for that independence. And she thought that was a terrible idea. Um, And at the same time, as she was really trying to campaign and get people to listen to her, the suffragettes appeared. And she was very angry. And I think we're kind of seeing that in our modern society of of the anger that women have that change hasn't come and kitty's retaliation at that time was to pick up a bomb and become a suffragette bomber
0: can you tell us a bit about why you think kitty's life particularly is an illuminating or interesting way to look at the suffragettes more
1: generally and perhaps what drew women to the movement No one actually knows about this part of our history, and I think that's an incredibly interesting thing. You know, we are taught about the suffragettes marching, we're taught about window smashing, but we're not taught about the bombs, we're not taught about the arson attacks. I wasn't taught it in school. We know today that people have very little knowledge of this. We don't know it at large. You know, it's not something everyone knows. And changing cultural memory is, is really the job of historians. And stories like this that have been hidden in archives, that have been forgotten or ignored or passed over because either they weren't fashionable or people had their own agendas and didn't want to draw attention to them, means that young historians like me get to discover them for the first time, and that's incredibly exciting. Um, You draw
0: very heavily on Kitty's autobiography. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, what it contains and perhaps a bit about the narrative of her life?
1: That was a real Da Vinci Code moment for me. Um, I was sitting in the archive of the Museum of London, and Beverly Cook, who's the curator there, knew I was working on women in the music halls because I was trying to understand them. My family were in the halls when I was younger, and so I was really excited about this idea. And she said, well, I've got this unpublished autobiography of a woman who was in the music halls at the start of her career, and no one's looked at it. You might be interested. Oh, and by the way, she was a suffragette. And I kind of rolled my eyes because at that point, I... Oh you no! Know, I was a young female historian, and I didn't want to be a woman's history historian because that felt like a trap. It felt like where all female historians ended up. And I, you know, I'm from the next generation who have their rights and think they know everything and think they have it all. And Bev put this um, this type bound autobiography this sort of manuscript in front of me, and I started to flick through it. And I couldn't stop reading. Kitty left these two volumes of her own words, of her own life story, to us. And she is the most incredible writer, the most incredibly passionate speaker. You know, you just, you can't put her down. And I couldn't leave the archive until I'd finished it, which was kind of an amazing thing, as, as it's the sort of thing I think historians can wait their whole life to experience is finding that source material or that one story that just captivates you. And to me, she really is kind of the original Me Too. This is an actress who was fighting in her industry to try and get people to listen to her and to change the power structure. And unfortunately at that time no one would, no one did, no one cared and she wasn't, even though she bound together with a couple of other actresses to give evidence to the London County Council to desperately try and get these changes to take place, they wouldn't listen and nothing happened, nothing was altered. At the same time as she's kind of growing incredibly despondent at the lack of change, the suffragettes appear and she discovers this organization of women who are campaigning and arguing and moving to a very different way of, of demanding the vote, which is increasing violence. And she walks into the headquarters at that time and sort of says, you know, I walked in and they immediately gave me the opportunity to showcase my, de- my devotion in deeds, not words, which means in violence, not in conversation. And so she becomes, really, to me, Edwardian England's most dangerous woman. She's marching round. She's um, she's sent across the country to carry out an arson and bombing campaign. And she's burning down MPs' houses. She's setting bombs in national parks. You know, she's really, she's going for it. Absolutely. She's an incredible incredibly dangerous and violent soldier in the cause of the suffragettes one of the results of this is that she is she occasionally is caught and arrested by the police and in one one sentencing is actually force fed 242 times it's one of the most extreme force feedings that we have amongst the suffragettes but because she's a german immigrant when the war breaks out even though she's been in england for the majority of her life the Home Office suddenly sees on the fact that they might be able to get rid of this incredibly dangerous woman by accusing her of being a German spy. And there's a kind of an incredible moment where Kitty is on the run, the police are hunting for her, trying to find out she is a German spy, and she manages to kind of get out of the country with the help of a number of high-profile suffragettes and is sent to America, where she has what I think is almost a a nervous breakdown or a a kind of a reaction to the life that she's been living for the last few years. And she goes into hiding and then is discovered by a journalist working as a maid in a, um, a New York household... And it brings her back to life, that kind of that attention on this missing suffragette. And she discovers the birth control movement, which is emerging at that time in New York and becomes uh, one of their leading figures for the next 20 years, working between the US and the UK as a birth control campaigner. You know, she's meeting H.G. Wells, she's working with Margaret Sanger. She's again travelling across the country, but this time lecturing on birth control. And to have one woman's life that connects both the suffragettes and the the fight for the vote in England and the birth control campaign in the US and the UK is an incredible thing to have. We do not have anything else like it. No one's ever looked at this. And these are the two most important campaigns that are still affecting women today, rights to your legal representation and your voice in your society and rights over your own body. And no one else has ever encompassed that story like Kitty Marion.
0: I think a lot of the time um, the suffragettes are written about and thought about in purely political terms. Uh, um, You know, women getting the vote, that was a victory in Parliament. But you um, contextualise them within a kind of broader history of uh, gender, culture and sex particularly, and women's sexuality. Can you explain to us the connection that you drew between women's sexuality and suffrage?
1: Well, I actually started out as a sex historian, as a historian of sexual culture and how women have and how women's sexuality has either been used or they have used their own sexuality has always really fascinated me because I think it helps us reset this dominant understanding that we've had of womanhood in the last 200 years, which is as purely a state of victimhood. And as someone who works on this period, all I can find is incredibly strong, passionate and powerful women not victims and I, I kept kind of getting really angry as a phd student was sort of going well people have always told me that this wasn't happening and that women didn't know anything about sex and actually i'm finding you know female birth control campaigners in the 1870s who are publishing hugely popular books that talk about condoms and the withdrawal method and i was never taught this in school i was you know i've never seen this anywhere And so I kind of I came to it from that background of reassessing uh, how we see women and and not seeing them just solely as victims before the vote because we really you know I think we do we sort of look at 1928 as the moment when women suddenly had rights and suddenly were equal and we all know actually in reality that's not the case at all before then there were huge numbers of incredibly passionate feminist, incredible women who were just living their lives and who were arguing and demanding equality and taking equality in that social space long before the vote had turned up. So I I was kind of... I was fascinated in that aspect. And then to find a woman who... Was experiencing sexual assault in the music halls, but was also incredibly pro-sex and was very understanding of the fact that many of her friends and many of her of the people that she was working with were having sex outside of marriage, were, didn't intend to get married, or were very happily married. Were was sort of really surprising to me because I'd always been taught and I think many people are taught that that didn't happen in the Victorian period and then to find her joining the suffragettes and sort of passionately fighting for women's rights and Kitty's motivation wasn't that she wanted the vote which I think is often how we only ever look at the women's movement it was that she wanted protection in her workplace and she knew the vote was the only way to get it. And we forget that there was a whole host of working women who were fighting and arguing for their rights in the suffrage movement because they wanted to feel safe, they wanted independence, and they wanted to be respected as equal with men. And they didn't see any reason why they couldn't be. So it just, it all came together, all these strands of discovering new lives, discovering new ways of thinking for me, you cannot separate our understanding of womanhood from our understanding of sex and power. All of those things are integral to one another.
0: Of course, because we've got the centenary of the Representation of the People Act, there's a whole uh, big discussion and debate going on around the suffragettes at the moment and how we should remember them, um, which you have been part of. Um, You have suggested that, the legacy of the suffragettes has been somewhat sanitised and somewhat they have been sanctified. Um, why do you think that might be?
1: There's two very simple reasons for that. One is in the 1930s, the Suffragette Fellowship, which were putting which was putting together the record from which all of our suffrage history has been built, from ephemera to memoirs to um, kind of every everything to do with the suffragette movement at that time very clearly decided that they were not going to talk about the bombings. And there's there's a good reason for this. You know, at this time, police hadn't really decided what they were going to do with the people who had committed very serious criminal damage. You know, when you're looking at the images of the suffragette bombs, those houses, those churches are absolutely gutted and sort of the scale of damage is incredible. So a lot of these women who were who were starting to wonder if they should talk about that part of their lives in their memoirs were very aware that it could leave them open to criminal prosecution. So I think there was a a desire to, on the one hand, protect those living suffragettes from criminal prosecution or potential criminal prosecution, and also to kind of step away from that incredibly violent rhetoric and its memory, because that had always been a serious issue between the suffragists and the suffragettes, between the WSPU, who were the people committing these violent acts, and everyone else within the women's movement who didn't agree that violence was the answer. So I think that was what happens in the 1930s. And then, really, historians... Historians can only work with the records that they have and so for the historians working in the 70s and the 80s and 90s, their preoccupation was often on what happens to the, what happened to the women's bodies as much as the feminist movement at that time was focused on women's bodies and, and our rights over them. And so they looked very much at force-feeding and they looked at the trauma and the lack of women's rights in general society. No one has looked at the violence itself And that might surprise us because we tend to think of history as something that is well-known and decided and fully researched. But actually this history, this bit of our history is only 90 years old. That's how incredible it is. You know, that's how close it is to us. And so there hasn't been anyone who looks at it. The only other person who ever looked at it was C.J. Beerman and he unfortunately died recently. And he managed to only publish a single journal article on it. That's one, one journal article in our entire understanding of it. And so I feel incredibly privileged to move that research forward and very lucky to be finding all of these women and, and bringing them to light for the first time properly. But I hope it's going to... The one thing I really hope is that it's going to inspire others to do the same because there's so much there. Can you give us an, um,
0: an idea of the extent of this violence? Because as you say, uh, for so long we've thought of it as uh, smashing a few windows. But can you kind of give us an idea of uh, the, the violence itself and the reaction that it provoked?
1: Oh, well, I I often say that the way to understand it is that anywhere in British society that you could find a woman, you could find a suffragette bomb. They put bombs in theatres, in churches, on railway on railway carriages, uh, in railway stations. They burn down railway stations. They burn, they burn golf greens. They burn post boxes literally every kind of facet of economic and social life the suffragettes attack from the rosslyn chapel in scotland down to churches and theaters in somerset to st paul's in london to theaters in dublin they are everywhere they attack everywhere in terms of this kind of the scale of these bombs one of the bombs that's discovered at the East london post office which was a huge central depot, had enough nitroglycerin in it to blow up the entire building and kill the 200 people who worked there. They put two bombs on the same train line between Waterloo and Kingston Pond Thames, at the same time, one coming out of London and one going in. You know, this is a, a hugely skilled and highly organised group who are determined to terrorise the British public, and they're very open about that. Emmeline Pankhurst states very clearly, we did this because we wanted to terrorise the British public, who would then put pressure on the government to say yes to our demands then they're very open on it um, about it. Uh, Christabel Pankhurst was publishing in The Suffragette a double-page spread of every single attack every week, which included the huge photographs of devastation, photographs of bombs, press reports into it, underneath the headlines of Reign of Terror. You know, they were owning their violence. They weren't embarrassed or ashamed by it. They were absolutely dedicated to it. And I think one of the things that really surprised me the most when I was researching it was just how many bombs there were. In one month alone in 1913, if you think they're bombing throughout 1913 and 1914, in one month alone in 1913, in May, there are 52 attacks, either of a bomb or an arson attack. 52 across the country. You know, this is an incredible scale of violence, unlike anything else we've ever experienced at the time. And or really, I would say... After, and the, the police at the time were absolutely convinced that the suffragettes were the most dangerous organisation working in Britain at that time, not the Irish, not the anarchists, it was the suffragettes. And we've forgotten this, we've, we, it's been hidden from us, it's been pushed to one side, and I really think we have to examine it because it tells us so much about both women then and women today. Bearing
0: all this in mind, do you think that it's fair to refer to the suffragettes as terrorists?
1: Absolutely. And one of my one of my favourite things to find, which has never been found before, was the headlines "Suffragette Terrorism," which they used uh, about the about the bomb that blew up Lloyd George's house, and when we know that it was referred to as suffragette terrorism at the time when we know that Emmeline Pankhurst specifically says we wanted to terrorize the british you know the british public And we know that they are taking out communications that, you know, they cut down trunk telegram wires and telephone wires between London and Glasgow. That's like taking out the internet between London and Glasgow today. Can you imagine what that would do? That they would burn, they would put serious phosphorus chemicals in the post, in post boxes that resulted in horrendous burns on the postmen who were emptying those or finding them later, that they were putting bombs on public transport, that they were hoping to target timber yards, that they, um, that they, you know, that they burned, that they absolutely gutted, and put bombs in MPs' houses, and churches, and theatres. You know, this is everything that we understand as domestic terrorism today, and it is everything that they understood as des- domestic terrorism then. The question of whether or not we should call the suffragettes and the WSPU terrorists is redundant to me because they are. And they were, and they were proud of it then. But there's a very old quote, which is, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So we have to understand... It makes us ask very uncomfortable questions about how we understand the fight for civil rights. And when you're looking at civil rights organisations across the board, across the world, every single, civil, every single civil rights movement has an extremist violent element from the fight for civil rights in America to the fight for domestic rights um, in the UK. And you have to remember, the suffragettes justified their violence by saying that the Chartists in the 1930s had attacked and burned down and attacked Bristol um, very violently, and that's why women were justified in being violent. Christabel Pankhurst herself states that if men are going to use bombs as a weapon of war, why should women not do that too? You know, it's not... They really were committed to showing that... If you aren't going to listen to women speaking, if you're not going to understand that women have the same capacity to speak and talk as men, we are going to show you that women have the same capacity to fight as men and to scare you and to terrorise you as men can. And it was, it was really a very dramatic, dangerous grabbing of equality, you know, demanding of equality, they weren't going to take no for an answer.
0: So ultimately, to what extent do you think that the violence did contribute to women getting the vote? There was a lot of public uh, backlash against it. It made people... very hostile towards the suffragettes so do you think that it did contribute to um the representation of the people act in 1918
1: absolutely and i think i think you're right there to pick up on the fact that there was a huge backlash backlash by the public to the violence and i think that socially the violence was detrimental i mean it definitely drew a number of other women who felt as kitty did desperate uh, ignored and and were horrifically radicalised by the violence they had experienced in society themselves that led them to carry out these actions. But one of the factors that I don't think anyone's really acknowledged before is what impact the violence had on the government. We know that during the First World War, Emmeline Pankhurst actually advocates being sent to Russia in 1917, which had just had a huge social revolution and granted women the right to vote, that she should be sent to go and talk to these hopeful new allies as the leader of one revolution to another, and she is sent. The government agrees. And, you know, that that's kind of an incredible thing. If you think this is the leader of your most dangerous terror- domestic terrorist organization is now being sent by the government to talk to the new revolutionary leadership in Russia. So if you think that she's, you know, she's sent to Russia as to speak to the leaders of the revolution. And I think there's a very clear kind of threat there, pressure towards our, go- our government, that when the war is over... If you do not pay attention to... If you do not do something to give women the vote, imagine what my organisation will carry out again. Because by 1914, they'd started to use guns. This is something... This is one of the things that I found the most kind of incredible when I was researching it. When Jenny Baines is arrested with her husband and her son for having um, set a bomb in a, in a a on a train, when the police go to her house and raid her home, they find a half-made bomb, a fully-made bomb, a revolver and a shotgun all loaded. You know, these are women whose violence is continuing to grow and to get more and more increasingly dangerous. So God knows what would have happened if the First World War hadn't broken out. And I think the government and the police are fully aware of that because they they were unable to cope with the suffragettes before the war. Imagine trying to put a society and a country back together with the social and economic damage that the First World War did, and then you have the risk of a terrorist organisation kicking off their violence again. Of course that was a factor in our government deciding to award some women the vote. And what's really interesting about that is the women that they do award the vote are over 30 who match a property qualification, which is either renting or owning something that was worth at least £5. Now that legitimises a huge number of the suffragettes who were arrested for serious violence, but also does not give the vote to the ones who were very young, who would perhaps remain radicalised after the war. I absolutely think that the violence was a very serious pressure on our government that no one's acknowledged before, but that doesn't mean that I think it was beneficial to the women's movement on the whole.
0: Do you think that we can see this violence as morally justified or do you think it's even useful to have moral judgments um, reflected back upon it?
1: Throughout this research and throughout writing the book I have found this at times incredibly uncomfortable because I know how I personally feel about this violence and how how having grown up under the IRA and now under ISIS, how how I view acts of terror in our society and it's... I think it's, it's a very, you get a very emotional reaction to it whenever you're, you're thinking about it. And I know that when, I've, when I first started researching this and I started talking about the suffragettes and showcasing what their violence really was, a lot of people found that reality incredibly difficult and were very upset and almost traumatised by discovering this in a movement that they idolised and they thought of as as close to perfect as possible. Personally, I think we have to know our, our history in its totality. A half history or a sanitised history serves no one. It's a corruption. And if you can present people with the facts, that actually gives us a far more interesting conversation and it makes us ask questions of ourselves and it makes us ask questions of the past that we haven't before. And history isn't easy. It shouldn't be comfortable. It shouldn't be something that, you know, you... Is, is safe. It should always challenge you. It should always be challenged. And that's why we have to look at these women and we have to understand their motivations and understand how people have fought for our rights. Because if we don't, we're going to ignore how hard and those incredibly difficult decisions they made to get us here. And that does a disservice to them and it does a disservice to history.
2: that was Fern Riddell. Death in 10 Minutes, Kitty Marion, activist, arsonist, suffragette, has just been published by Hodder and Stoughton. And you can read a version of this interview in the May issue of BBC History magazine, which also contains articles on Elizabeth Woodville, Karl Marx and World War II adventure. Look out for it in all good retailers and in our many digital formats. Okay, well, that's about all for today, but do listen in on Monday when we'll be delving into the history of medicine.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.